over the past few weeks, we've been looking at several things. We've been, we've been looking at, uh, really, we started with the idea of singleness, and that singleness is not something that's an afterthought in the Christian church, but Jesus lived his life as a, a single, and Paul, our greatest teacher, lived his life as a single, and it was not like an afterthought. It was not a less than position uh, and status in life, but it was an honored position, and it was uh, really people in leadership, and, and Paul brought great kind of fruit to that. He said, look, there's actually a lot of positive to a life of singleness, um, and so whatever your desire is, we wanted to just bring encouragement to that. Uh, we really looked at the foundations of what a godly marriage looks like, and then last week, we got this really beautiful picture from the, the book of Hosea and this prophetic work that really was a picture of God pursuing us as his church and this imagery of God as the father or, or, or the husband and us, the church, as his bride and him pursuing us despite our unfaithfulness. So we'll be diving into Song of Solomon, which if you know anything about Sol- Song of Solomon, you can get ready to blush a little bit. Um, it's intense in its intimate language, um, more intense than what we'd ever believe the Bible to have in it. And so uh, now that I've got you excited about that, you guys look so excited to talk about it, you're like, well, what is he going to say? Uh, we'll dive into that in a minute. As I begin to approach this uh, topic of, of, uh, of sex and what the scriptures say about that, uh, I really begin to think about all these different uh, relationships I've had in the past uh, with, with folks in the church in which I've counseled many people on this topic, to, to be honest, and I'm not a sex counselor, but it's amazing how spiritual, kind of how much spiritual warfare is in this idea and in this, um, uh, this part of our life that God's given us in, uh, in our sexuality. And I mean, I, I think through um, uh, people who I've counseled, you know, uh, married couples who haven't touched each other in years. I, I've counseled uh, single people who everywhere they went in town, they would just slip people their number for an offer for free sex and dozens of sexual partners. I, I, I've counseled people, um, you know, in and out of, not in and out, not into porn addiction, but out of porn addiction. Um, I was about to say in, that, and that's, that's not something you want to hear a pastor say. Um, but there's, there's such um, a, this kind of wide range. I have counseled people the day after they had been raped the night before at a truck stop. I've counseled numerous people, I can't even name how many people that were abused sexually as children. It's a deep, deep topic, and everyone has a different perspective on it. Everybody comes from different places. I've been around people who the word sex was never mentioned in their home ever. There was no conversation of the birds and the bees unless that conversation was about birds and bees. There was no conversation about sex. It just act like everybody just kind of showed up with the stork. Like that was the message of how we get here and arrive. But then I've had other people, even close friends of mine, that in their home, their parents would walk around naked and the main topic of conversation at the dinner table every night was sex. I mean, we all come from these different places different experiences and ideas, and it's very important, regardless of where we're at in our life, whether you're single or married, uh, whether you're divorced, um, or or wherever you're at in your life, that we have a God-honoring perspective of what sex looks like, because it's deeply connected to who we are, and uh, the Bible thought it was, uh, or God thought it was important enough to put it 
in the Bible uh, on countless occasions, and so we're going to look at uh, one of those today. Uh, so I- I'm excited to dive into this. I know some of you are like a little hesitant, like why are we talk about sex in church? Shouldn't we talk about church and then talk about sex another time? But the truth of the matter is that we live in a society that is talking about sex all the time. You literally can't go anywhere. You can't turn on any TV show. You can't go to any movie. You can't walk through the grocery store without images and a portrayal of what it means to be sexy. The most sexiest, the sexiest man alive, the sexiest woman alive. There's all these, these things that you see on magazines all over the place, all over the TV. And this, this topic actually seems to be so much at the forefront because of a popular movie that has come out recently. And these are no way, like, I'm not trying to, like, whatever about that. It just so happens to be in the same time frame in which that movie's come out. But I think we'll find a very different picture of what sex looks like in the scriptures um, from what we've learned growing up, from what we've uh, learned by the society that we live in, an incredible amount of distortion when it comes to godly sexuality and what it means in this part of our life. And so we're going to dive into Song of Solomon. We're going to end up bouncing around to some different places, um, but we're going to really be digging into Song of Solomon. I really want to give you just five simple keys today. Simple is is a joke when we're talking about sexuality, but five keys to really God-honoring sex. And so whether you're single or married in this place, Hebrews 14 says something really powerful, and it says that marriage should be held in high honor among all, not just for married folks, not for just divorced folks, not just for single folks, but all. Marriage should be held in high honor, and the marriage bed should be undefiled. And so there's this powerful picture of of, um, and clarity that uh, the scriptures teach us about how we should view marriage and the marriage bed and, and sex included in that. So we're going to dive in here into so- uh, Song of Solomon, uh, which is written by Solomon, of course. That seems to make sense. Sometimes you'll see it written as Song of Songs. It's just the first line, and he, he you know, notes who he is. This is early on in Solomon's life. Some of you may be familiar with Solomon. He was known as the, it was David's son, King David. It was King David's son, Solomon. And he was known as the wisest man in the world. He became one of the wealthiest and most influential people the world has ever known at, at this time. And th- this, he writes this book very early on in his life because his life takes an interesting turn. He, he, he begins in this place of um, David's son. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. King David's kind of a, a, a big deal in the scriptures and in the, the Jewish heritage. But he's his, his, his heir and so he begins at this very good place of just faithfulness to God and a really pure view. And that's when we get the question, God presents him, Solomon, ask for anything you want and I'll give you whatever you want. And that's early on in Solomon's life where he asks for, for, uh, for wisdom. And later on, as uh, things you know, progress in his life, he becomes super influential, he becomes super rich. He ends up having like hundreds of thousands of wives and concubines. And like he begins to stray from the faithfulness that he had with the Lord. And he, he begins to end his life in a very different way than what it, it began in faithfulness to God. And then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's sort of depressing. It's sort of depressing on a guy who had gained everything, who had achieved everything. And he said, it's all like chasing the wind, man. <laughs> He said, I've, I've got all these things and it meant nothing. So we see this, this is just, that's kind of a little bit of a picture of who's writing this. But it's at the early part of his journey. And uh, things will end up changing on, on his perspective and his faithfulness to God. So let's begin to dive in. We've got five keys to God honoring um, sex and sexuality. And I, I believe the first part starts really where 
where our whole life and journey begins as believers. I think it's starting with a biblical perspective with a healed heart. And the truth of the matter is that I, I think maybe in America, at one point, there was a, a biblical perspective. We technically still live in the Bible Belt, but our city doesn't have a biblical perspective, not in the least bit. And the truth of the matter is, if we really started to get in and press on certain issues and things in our life, many of us don't have a biblical perspective on, in certain areas of our life. We may agree on Jesus, but there's all these other things that, yeah, I'm not sure I can buy into this. And so we have to really... Uh, ask ourselves the question, do I really have a biblical perspective? Am I really seeing God as the source of truth for my life? And this is his inspired word. And so there's, I think, a couple aspects to, to talking about biblical perspective. And then let's talk about a healed heart. And that's when we're going to jump in to Song of Solomon. I think there's two things that really take, take the cake, if you will, when setting up what's a biblical perspective when it comes to sex. I think two things. One, that sex is sacred. Just as our skin color is sacred and that and it's a, a God-given gift of who we are, our sexuality, and, and sex is sacred. God wove us together and knit us. Uh, our anatomy is sacred to the Lord. Um, and this is, that's the Hebrews 13, 4. I'll go ahead and read it. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The first aspect, that sex is sacred, that God's created this way, that he's created some of us concave and some of us convex. He's created us to connect, and, and really when a man lays with a, a woman, they become one just in the sheer anatomy of the situation. I don't have to spell that out for you guys. You guys have all taken science classes at some point. But there's this union that God, the way God has created us is sacred. And when we engage in intercourse, we're entering into sacred space that God's created us that way. And there's something beautiful about that should be honored and understand that it's sacred to who we are. And that's what let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's very important that we take on this, this view that sex is sacred because if our foundation is just a moral standard, oh, okay, sex outside of marriage um, is not necessarily like a, a good thing, okay? So maybe we've just got that moral standard, but it's not a biblical perspective that it's sacred. And then when we're married, well, we never had this idea that sex is sacred. And so it's very easy for us to just change our moral fabric. Here's a question for you. What changes first, our behavior or our theology? What changes first, our behavior or our theology? Let me say theology. Yeah, we begin to suit our theology to fit the behavior that we want to do. But if our theology comes first and then our behavior follows that, it should be the standard, the, the, the foundation. If, if that is sex is sacred, then it's not just a matter of us changing our moral fabric. It's a, a matter of who we are and who God's created us to be and standing on the theological um, uh, precedence of his word. And this, the second thing is that sex is a gift. All those perspectives that we come from and experiences that bring us all to this maybe jaded place where we don't even notice the sexuality that's in our society. We don't even notice the lust that's in our heart and in our mind. We don't even notice the fact that we're so sexually driven or we don't even notice that we're so jaded towards it and we're so grossed out by the idea 
of sex. One author really explained the perspectives out there that we can have. We can either say that sex is a God. Some of us have a perspective that it's a God and we're run by addiction and wanting more of it and it's really our, our idol and we worship it. And then some of us have a, a picture of it as gross. I don't want anything to do with it um, because of whatever's happened in our life or whatever perspective. But the real, I think, godly perspective is that sex is not a God and it's not uh, gross, but it's a gift from God that has beauty and has purpose and has boundaries. I, I, I love what Song of Solomon, it, it's this poetry. And, and so just as Hosea was this intense imagery about God pursuing us and really intense language at times, but there was this tender storyline. So in the, the Song of Solomon, it's, it's the, really one of the most beautiful poetic works the world's ever known, and it's in the Bible. And it's poetry is really what it is. Of it, there, There's parts where uh, it's written as he says this and she says this back to him, and the friends are saying this together and just watching this relationship, this beautiful marriage relationship between this young man and this young woman, Solomon, at a young age, it's poetry. And it's this really beautiful image. And, and several times the, the she in, in the poetry says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't stir up or awaken love until it so desires. And if, if you're one um, like I that you ever let the cat out of the bag before marriage, it's very difficult to get the cat back in the bag. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't do that. And so it, there's a real strong thing that, to protect the gift and don't wake it up before it so desires because it's a desire that will be unquenching and difficult to, to go back on. It can be, and I'm walking proof of that with my wife, but um, it's certainly difficult too. So not only a biblical perspective, I think that's just one element of it, that sex is sacred and sex is a gift, taking on this view. But I think it's also the second part that we have to have a healed heart. Because when we're broken and we look to the scriptures, again, every, we can't see past our brokenness. And the truth of the matter is that there's, a, there's good broken and there's bad broken. I think we've talked about this in the past. I want to be good broken. I don't want to be bad broken. You know what I mean? There's such a thing as good debt and bad debt. I want, <laughs> I, I, I want uh, to be good broken, not bad broken. But some of us, we can't look past our bad broken when we look at the scriptures. And the only thing we see when, when this comes up is our brokenness, our pain, our shame, or whatever we have. And so this second aspect is a healed heart, which is so important. And look to the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, and we see some really, really uh, beautiful um, uh, comments uh, that take place in, at the beginning of that. Do I have that, that verse up there? I think I do. And this is, this is her talking. This is them first beginning. This is the very beginning of, of the, the poetry she says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened, darkened by the sun. There's this image, and in their time, not in, in ours, but in their time, it, it, it was uh, better for a woman to, to have lighter skin because that meant that she uh, was not working in the fields and darkened by the sun. This woman, uh, as this uh, text says in chapter 1, that she, she had been working in the fields, and she was ashamed of how dark she was, that she was forced basically out in slavery by brothers and by men to work in the fields and work hard, and, and really it was more desirable for her to stay indoors. Would anybody rather kind of stay indoors and not work out in the fields? And that's kind of where she was at. But listen to his response to her basically laying out her insecurities of I'm ashamed of who I am. Don't stare at me. Don't look at me. 
She says, he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. He's like, you look good. You look good. He begins to counteract her insecurities with encouragement. And if we begin to look through the text, all through the text, all through uh, the Song of Salmon, we see this incredible attention to detail from the man towards the woman. And the woman noticing his details too, which is so opposite of how things normally are, right? Like, you know, women most of the time, like, you didn't even notice my hair, which I've gotten better about noticing hair. I, I figured out very early on that's a big deal for women. And even beyond my wife, I'm like, hey, your hair looks good. You know, I'll, I'll say that because I know that matters to women to notice the details. And, but there's something so big uh, about this in the life of a, a husband and wife and for all of us knowing that God notices our details. Because just as there's imagery in Hosea of God chasing an unfaithful woman, there is imagery here between the Father longing for us and noticing us. And hear this, God notices your details. And when it comes to our insecurities, he meets us in those and wants to build us up. He wants to encourage us, regardless of any person on this earth that's spoken down about who we are, if we have shame about our body or or what we've done in the past or what we do for a living, God wants to come in and speak to those in in, in security and say, my grace is sufficient for your weakness. And maybe that just resonates with us this morning, regardless of status today, that God notices your details. She notices him. How be- or, um, verse 15, he said, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are, doves, like flocking around in there. And in verse 16, she responds, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, charming, and our bed is fresh. There's this, this Hebrews, Hebrews uh, text here of our bed is fresh, it's undefiled. There's something beautiful about that. And so the truth of the matter is that our lives, will, we, I think all of us, we want the life that the scriptures teach about. We want that incredible peace that passes understanding, right? We want this joy, that strength, no matter what happens. I mean, we want this confidence that comes knowing that we're victorious and we're a new creation. We want all of that. But we don't really live that most of the time, do we? Like, we, we struggle to have peace. We struggle to have joy. We struggle to, to be confident in who God's created us to be. We fight through all of that stuff. And the truth of the matter is, is that I think it comes with our perspectives and a healed heart that if our lives will start lining up with the Word of God when our minds and our eyes really start lining up with the Word of God. Our lives will start looking a little more like that when we take on this biblical perspective. So some of that's got to be releasing this, this worldview we had before and the junk that we've been in and, and, and clinging to the Word of God. And, and once we really take on our, our eyes and our minds as we look into the Scriptures, our lives will start looking a little more like that. And it's a process, certainly. Um, but there's beauty, and I think it really begins with having a healed heart. So wherever you're at today, know that God sees your insecurities, he sees your brokenness, and he's not afraid of them. He wants to speak into them because his grace is sufficient for our weakness. And there's a beautiful picture there about a healed heart. Uh, I think the the second, so biblical perspective with a healed heart, and I I really want to go into the second one here, which is really a proper standard of beauty. Second key is a proper standard of beauty. We've all looked at one next to us and say, 
oh man, he, he dresses nicer than I do, or he makes more money than I do, or, and she's thinner than I am, or her hair is cooler than mine, or she has someone and I don't, or he has someone and I don't. We've all compared ourselves to someone else. And I think what, the, we'll, as we look into the Song of Solomon, what we see is this really powerful picture of, of God loving us. And I think in the marriage relationship, it's so important if we're going to have God honoring sex that our spouse, our partner, is our standard of beauty. And if you're single in the house today, <clears throat> your standard of beauty is Jesus. And if you're married in the house today, your standard of beauty is Jesus and then your spouse. It's not a difficult thing for us to grab a hold of. I love what Proverbs 5 says. It's so rich and so poignant to um, us uh, as uh, those that are married in the house and those that will be one day. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Basically saying don't have sex with prostitutes. Let your, let your fountain be blessed <clears throat> and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Saying, let her be your standard of beauty. Not anybody else's boobs, but her boobs. Not anybody else's figure. Not anybody else's figure, but his figure. Not anybody else's intellect or humor, but his, but her. They become your standard of beauty after Christ. And we don't realize it. We don't realize how much this makes an impact. Whether it's whatever it might be. But in this world we live in, there's so many images of what beauty is. This has come to the forefront in our media all across uh, the nation in recent days. Where people are really pushing away from these touched up images of models. They were really pushing away from the, the, the super skinny runway models. They're pushing away from that saying that's not real life. And the truth of the matter is, is that we don't realize how much we buy into that and how much it controls and affects how we view our sexuality and the image that God's giving us. And I think the, the, the chapter begins to, to play things out. Uh, uh, chapter 2 verse 2 he says this, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. He's basically saying, baby, you stand out from the rest. Like there's a room full, full of women, but I notice you. Everybody else like thorns. And some of you in the house today, like if you're married or not, need to begin to kind of process this and, and really begin to see this fact that everybody, everything else with, uh, is thorns, but it's Christ that we cling to. It's Christ that we cling through. Every other person is nothing to me except for my spouse. They're just thorns. Verse uh, 7 in chapter 4 says this, You're altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. All right, somebody wants to call, call him on this because he's lying, right? Like, he's, li he's lying because we all have flaws. She has some kind of flaws. She sure thought she had flaws. But he comes and says, there's no flaw in you. Man, wouldn't that be good for us to hear, you know? Wouldn't that be good for us to hear? 
just as people, I'm not talking about husband, I'm just talking about as people, it'd be great for somebody to say, like, I know you got all kinds of issues with yourself, and you could name a whole litany of things of which you don't like about yourself, but wouldn't you love for someone, especially God, to come to you and say, look, there's no flaw in you. Wouldn't you love to hear that? That's the image we get here. Can you go back to that? That's the image we get out of these texts of there's no flaw in you, and that is the truth of the gospel today. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our mess, though he could. He doesn't see our mess, he sees Jesus. And he's pursuing us, and when we're feeling down about ourselves, he's saying, hey, just come here, my grace is sufficient for your weakness. You may be down on yourself, but I want to build you up and tell you that there's no flaw in you. You're as white as snow because of Jesus. And this is a powerful image here. And there's so much to say, both for just our lives as believers and as well for the marriage relationship. So having a proper standard of beauty away from what every other thing would say except for Jesus and our spouse. And that is our standard of beauty. If you, if you still like blondes, but your, your wife is a brunette, then things need to change. You know, if you still like tall women and your wife's short, then things need to change. Or the same thing about, you know, wives to husbands. So that proper standard of beauty. Let's go to this quote that I love by Richard Needham, which is really, really powerful. It says this, you don't marry one person, you marry three. The person you think they are, the person they are, and the person they're going to become as a result of being married to you. It's a really powerful idea that we can have an impact with a biblical perspective and a healed heart. We can build them up beyond their insecurities. That Think about this. Someone being married to you for 50 years, will they be a better person or a worse one? Will they be more insecure or more confident? Will they be more at peace with who they are and who God's called them to be or less of it? Will they feel joy or will they feel fear from being in a relationship with you? They feel like a failure or feel like a success. There's power in, in this quote if we can really understand that from a biblical perspective and how we're all called to be. And maybe, maybe we could just ask this of people that work in the same office as us. Will people be better because we've been there or will they be worse off? Will they be more bitter? <clears throat> I'm going to brag on my wife. She's serving over in the nursery today. And uh, when we moved to, to Georgia, we were in Valdosta, Georgia, um, before uh, we serve, you know, came here to plant uh, Fathom Church, and and uh, we had a little bit of family in town, a little bit of family. Uh, her grandparents lived there, and uh, her aunt and uncle lived there. Her uncle's now passed away. He passed away years ago. He's an attorney, and um, her, her uncle was, he was a really good man, had a really good heart, but he was away from the Lord. He really was. He was far from the Lord, and had, had gone through a lot, and um, was really just trying to make his life work, and not lose his marriage and lose his whole life and sanity at the same time. And, and we moved into town, and, and um, I'm not putting this all on my, my wife, but I saw the impact she had by working in his office. There was only two people that worked in his office. There was one lady and then Taryn. And I saw the impact that he had in, or she had in his final years of life, which he died when he was 45 or 46. So he died very early, massive heart attack. But I saw the impact she had being in the same office of him. So don't discount that fact and, and just say, I'm talking about marriage talk. I'm talking about workplace too. Like you can have a profound impact on somebody's life and you don't know when that life might be cut short, even at the age of 46 or younger. 
So it really starts with this proper standard of beauty, us living that, living that can have a profound impact on one another and encouraging others. So, and and the third thing here, if you'll go ahead and and throw that up, we'll dive into several texts here, is really a bond with boundaries. So I want to jump outside of Song of Solomon for just a minute, and there's a a few verses that pop to mind, because really before we, we dive into these texts, we've got to understand that with every gift, there's certain kind of boundaries in which God wants to take care of this. I, I, I think I referred to this last week or the week before, that you don't put a fence around your dog because you hate your dog. You put a fence around your dog because you love your dog. You know, you, you put your dog on a leash not because you're a cruel pet owner, but, be, you know, I don't correct my son because I hate him, but because I want him to grow up to be a good man and a reasonable adult that's not a complete moron. Um, <laughs> quit embarrassing me, son. <laughs> um, and so God puts boundaries on the things that matter in our lives. And we matter. So there's boundaries that come. When we're young, we want to rebel from every boundary that's put on us. But the more we understand the gospel, the boundaries don't come first. There was a relationship before the law came into play. Before the Ten Commandments happened, there was a relationship. He said, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And then later on, he's like, hey, here's the deal. You can't have any other gods before me. Can't go around killing each other. He puts some standards, some boundaries for this gift of relationship with God. Here's one that Jesus points up for everybody in the room that's ever said, I've never, um, you know, committed adultery. Like Jesus, like, hey, you know, you think you're doing good. Like, let me up the ante a little bit. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. Even looks. Like, you raised the ante and like, okay, you thought you were good by just not going and screwing around. Like, hey, no, like, it starts with your eyes. Infidelity and adultery doesn't begin with some grave act of running around and just giving yourself away. It usually starts with really small things. Like, just a little bit longer of a hug. Or just... Uh, an innocent text that kind of kept going. Things begin and they don't end. And so Jesus is upping the ante. And, and, and it's not to move to a place of legalism, because this is what we can tend to do. We can get so scared that we're going to sin that we back ourselves in the closet where we don't understand freedom. And, 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 and we don't, we don't want to move to that place. But what Jesus is saying is, like, you need to control your eyes because it's really access to your mind and your heart. And so if we're allowing things to come in our eyes, then those things, I was just talking with uh, Marcus and Shabrine uh, before, before service, and we were discussing some like, um, really like dark movies that we had seen and how much those affect us. Like It's so intense. And I was talking about when we went to Africa and you get to watch movies and stuff. I watched a couple movies and I'm like, oh my gosh, these are so intense. I just need to watch something super happy and super light because these were way too intense for me. But our eyes give access to our mind, our hearts, and we've got to be careful about that. That's what Jesus says. In fact, in, in uh, Corinthians 6, Paul gives us even, like, some even more good things. Like Jesus is saying, be careful what you watch for, what you're watching, how you're looking at things. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. He's saying, run. He's saying, run from it. And I, what one of my mentors who, who struggle with porn addiction in in church ministry for most of his adult life. I mean, he, he was in his 60s and would constantly talk, uh, uh, and maybe he was even in his 70s. No, I think he died when he was in his mid-60s. But um, 
he would just always say, he would talk about this addiction that he battled most of his life, and he said, um, just you can't let your feet take you anywhere that you can't handle. And that was always this idea is not only do our minds or our eyes have to come in with our boundaries, but also our feet. We don't put ourselves in positions that we know we're not strong enough to handle regardless of uh, what we're dealing with. Every other sin a person commits out, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person commits sins against his own body. What in other parts of the scripture talks about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, basically that this is sacred space. And then when we commit this body in or outside the body, but this is actually something against our own body. Um, chapter 7 puts another boundary here for us, and it's not the way we would think it would be. All these other, like, watch your eyes, um, you know, watch your feet, make sure you run from, look at what uh, First Corinthians, or, uh, yeah, First Corinthians 7 says, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, talking about sex, so that you can devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. He puts another boundary on it, don't refuse each other sex. Like, some of you guys, that should be like an amen in like a marriage. Like, that sounds great. Like, yeah, she can't tell me no anymore. He can't tell me no anymore. And the reality of the situation, that this is here for our, our good because we won't be tempted. And he says that it actually is good to kind of set aside that because we can be kind of solely kind of focused on that, but to set aside us for, for certain times for prayer, but to not, uh, you know, push away sex because of lack of, um, or because of whatever, lack of desire or uh, we're stressed or whatever it might be, to not push those things away. But sometimes that's so easy in a marriage, in different seasons of a marriage, where one person's overly stressed or more insecure at a certain time. It's easy to begin to push those things away. And for those of you that are single, that have uh, never been in, in this type of relationship, um, th- then just kind of count this as, as wisdom for in the future. Those things happen, those seasons come, where one partner or the other doesn't feel as much. But it's saying, don't deprive. Continue in the act, because it's filling um, both pleasure and purpose in our lives. Uh, and it's a part of the boundaries, that this is a bond with ba- boundaries is really what God honoring sex is about. I love where, where the, the uh, Song of Solomon begins to go in, in some of these texts, um, particularly um, this next one that we're going to look at, when it talks about desire upon desire. Desire upon desire. One of my favorite texts in Scripture is that we love because he first loved us. And that's what we see. We see this image in here of, of one who wanted to, the, the gal wanted to maybe push him away because of insecurities or whatever. But desire on desire shows up several times throughout the text. I think you guys have all three of those up there that I wanted to point out. And they're quite powerful in our life on how God desires us in the second chapter. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull that up real quick and read it. I don't think I gave it to you guys, but I want to read it because I think it's powerful Uh, Verses 8 through 14. Listen, my lover. Look, here he comes. Leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Come away with me. See, the winter has passed. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooling of doves is heard in our land. The fig trees forms in its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. 
that kind of gives you this picture of this beautiful poetic language here in the Song of Solomon. Just absolutely beautiful, like the imagery, like you begin to picture like some kind of Shakespeare-esque like prairie and feel of all the fruits like beginning to blossom and like something special, like they just want to run away in the fields together. It's just this beautiful language that God wants this intimate um, relationship with us where we can just kind of run away with him sometimes and just enjoy one another's presence. And I think that's really what this, it begins to say is that there is this desire that God has for you. All of you. Not just each one of you, but all of each one of us. He has this desire for us, this desire to commune and to be with us. Does God need us? Probably not. But does he want us? Scriptures say that he is a jealous God. He wants us. There's that, that Nick Jonas song. I'm sure you guys don't know it, but I actually really like it. But talking about being jealous, that I'm jealous over you. Don't get mad at me because I'm jealous over you. There is this desire that God has for us and we should have to our spouse that is so strong. We just want to be with them. Chapter 4 says, <clears throat> it, it gets intense, y'all. I'm telling you, chapter 4, she's like, do I have to put my robe back on? <laughs> She's like, do I really? My heart is pounding for you. I want you. I take off my robe. I don't want to put it back on. Like that is desire upon desire. Chapter 7 says, I belong to my beloved. And his desire is for me. The truth of the matter is that no marriage is perfect. And no people are perfect that we make mistakes. We look at other people and they become our standard when the person God's given us and he's given us Christ as our standard of beauty. And we have these mistakes, but it's powerful to understand that, go back to that, that last one, that we belong to him. We belong to him and his desire is for us. doesn't need you. Need is a powerful thing in a marriage, in a relationship, in our lives. Some of us, our needs are to be affirmed. It's one of my needs, to be affirmed, to be built up. A lot of times we think of that more for the females, but it's really for a lot of males too. Some of us, it's physical touch, like we just receive love through someone just hugging us, or maybe through sex. Some of us through gifts, like we love good gifts, we receive gifts through these things. We all have these needs and they need to be filled and we talked about that a little bit with God wanting to fill those. But to know that, that we are his, that he doesn't need us, but he wants us and he desires us. I challenge you to think about that every day you wake up this morning. Or this morning. How many times can you wake up in a day? think about that through this week when you wake up, that he desires me. I dare you to put that somewhere. He desires me. Maybe just put chapter uh, 7, verse 10. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. That God longs to be present with us. He longs to 
be with us in our daily life, in our routine, whatever we're going through. He wants us. He wants to run away with us. I love what this, this uh, quote says here that, uh, about a successful marriage. It's really about, requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. About falling in love all over again. Not that we've ever fallen out of love, but we, the, that song you guys just sang, the more I see you, the more I want you, the more we love you. The more we see you, the more we love you. We just grow in that, and we fall in love all over again. The same thing is true with our relationship with God. Let's look at this last point here. And I think it's a powerful one that we find in chapter eight, which is the last chapter of Song of Solomon. For we've got a biblical perspective with a healed heart, and we really get a picture of what the proper standard of beauty looks like, and and a bond, the bond and the boundaries that come with that and the desire. We understand this, that leaning on the beloved is a big part of it here, and that regardless of what season we're in, single or married or whatever your life looks like right now, that we're to lean on the beloved. And that's the picture we get here, verses 3 through 5 in chapter 8. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. She says it again, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And the women from around them, the friends, ask this question, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is this that comes up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? These are the friends' response in this poetry that other people have taken notice of this relationship. One in which she pushed him away. One in which she was insecure about who she was, but he pursued her and said his desire is for her. His left arm, you just get this intimate picture of being embraced. And then the others look on and say, who's this coming up from the wilderness? The wilderness here speaks speaks to the wilderness that we experience. The loneliness, the brokenness, a state of separation from God that every single one of us have experienced. We're born into it. The isolation that we feel, sometimes in a marriage, sometimes as a single. So what the wilderness can really represent here. Who is this coming up from the wilderness Leaning on her beloved. The beloved is a picture of Christ. And that our lives should be solely and fully leaning on him. I read it this morning. Christ, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the foundation on which our lives are built. Christ, he's our redemption, he's our hope today, in which our entire lives should be leaning on Him. And if we can begin to understand this in the confines of our own lives, whether you be single or whether you be married today, and you're going through a tough season or you've been going through a tough season, we lean on, on one person, and it's Jesus. We lean on God. I, some of you, I, I was thankful that many of you were able to, to come out to the marriage seminar last weekend, and Anthony Beckham that was here with us, he opened up the whole thing with this beautiful image, and I never heard this in my life, but
but talking about when a man in Genesis, that when a man will leave his mother and father and will cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. He talked about the, the Hebrew understanding of what a cleave was, and it comes from the word cleaver. You may know a little bit about this. My dad was a butcher, so I know a little bit about it, but they didn't really use cleavers. They used, like, machines because we're in the 2000s. But um, he was explaining the cleaver had really three blades. There was a center, larger blade, and then there were two side blades, and the center blade held the two outside blades together. Leave mom and dad, leave where we come from, coming out of the wilderness and cleaving to one another, being joined together by Christ. Wherever you're at in your, your life right now, lean on the beloved. Cleave to the Father, cling, cleave to the Son, cleave to the Spirit. Because he's what's holding our relationships together. He's what's holding our life together. So I don't know where you're at, but I know every single one of us have sexual identity. And every single one of us have certain images about our body and and what our lives should have looked like and what they have looked like. But going back to that Richard Needham quote, when we marry, we marry three people, the person that we think we marry, the person we actually marry, the person that we'll become by being married. And I think about that with my own life and just looking at my relationship with Jesus. I thought he was one thing when I signed on. I heard one guy joke about it and he said, man, if I knew what I was signing up for, I don't know if I would have signed up for it. If I really knew at the beginning what Jesus would be asking of me, I don't know that I could say yes. He was being, he was joking. But then the more I fell in love and the more I understood who he really is, the more I've been transformed. The more I've been transformed to see that being in this relationship has changed me. And that's my prayer for us as a single, as a married in the house today, that being in relationship with Jesus, leaning on our beloved, will help us winter every storm, will help us fight through every storm, will help us figure out every failure because we're cleaving to him, because we've been transformed in this beautiful relationship with him. I want to ask you to stand today. We're going to pray and worship and come to the table in a few moments. And I just want to pray for you today. God, today we know in this room, God, we're all in this different place because we've all come from a different place, but we know we're one at the feet of Jesus. All have fallen short, God, and we need you. You don't need us, but you want us, God. I pray that the picture that we see in the Song of Solomon of intimacy and and God just growing closer to you and being transformed by you, God, I pray that we would be one who leans on the beloved. We would be the one that leans on you, Father. God, I pray for every heart today that's feeling far, that's feeling lost, God, that would come home out of the wilderness, God, leaning on the beloved. God, we give you praise today because every single person here is fearfully and wonderfully made, God, and you've called us your own, that we are your beloved, God. You've loved us. You're desirous for us. We are yours. We give you praise, God. We worship you in this moment. Let's worship together.